Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. A blessed epiphany season to all of you this Thursday, February the 3rd, as the light of Jesus shines on us from Matthew chapter 14. Right in the middle of Matthew brings us, I guess you would call it some darkness. John the Baptist is a vital figure to this point, obviously related to Jesus, pointing people to Jesus and to re- repentance of uh, repentance for their sins. And now we hear him being one who um, justly was put into jail, as we learned from Matthew chapter 4, and we see his ultimate demise. It's kind of like you're hearing these great parables, these great stories, you're, you're on your way to the cross of Jesus, and right in the middle we see the darkness with John the Baptist. What does this mean for us? It shows us, once again, why we need a king like Jesus as opposed to the kings of this world. And we pray today, O Lord, give us your light. So we do that this morning as a gift are ready, ready for you. Thank you to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. And I'll say this today, today on the Coffee Hour, we had Dr. Matthew Heise on the Coffee Hour. So check that out this morning on podcast with the Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah. As Dr. Matthew Heise spoke about this great ministry around the world, visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. Helping us to be strengthened by God's word this morning, we welcome back regular guest, Pastor Curtis Dieterding of Zion Lutheran Church in Fort Myers, Florida. Pastor Dieterding, happy epiphany and welcome back to Thy Strong Word. And it's good to be here again. So um, we, I, I have to say, you know, today, finally, after about uh, four or five days, uh, say yesterday and today, we finally see the sun again down here. We were having some, we had a cold streak actually come through, pushed down from Canada, of course, and uh, saw frost on my roof for the very first time since I've lived here. <laughs> so that's how cold it got. <laughs> so so it, it can get cold down here. It's just, uh, you know, it's very rare. That's all I can say. How many iguanas were falling from the trees? That's my oh, question. Oh yeah, yeah. You have to you have to watch out for the falling iguanas. Yes, that was the big thing. <laughs> so, so they do actually they actually get to the point where they look like they're completely dead, and um, they actually after the sun comes back out, thaw out, you know, so to speak, and come back to life. They look like they're resurrecting from the dead. So, <laughs> oh my goodness. So, yeah. so besides the weather, I can tell Pastor Dieterding that you spent time in Minnesota because that's what we love talking about the weather. So. Other than the weather, what's going on for you and your family and the work of the saints at Zion? Well, we're uh, busy in what we call season. So season usually is at its highest point between January through April, and it's at its peak in March because of spring training for baseball, for the National Baseball uh, League, because we've got a number of teams that, of course, uh, are in the area down here in southwest Florida, and and, uh, and everybody wants to come and watch them, you know. So, But uh, this year, you know, we have, uh, we have a lot of – uh, people, I think, that have just been tired of been staying at home up north, and we're getting a whole lot more people right now than than what we have, especially last year, which which is our probably one of our lowest years ever. So, well, you know, that is a, a very true thing, and for us, 
when it's negative 16 degrees, it seems like a really good deal to go. Yeah. Even if it's 31 degrees, that's better than negative 16 um, for the moment. Yeah. So anyways, but Pastor, it's great to uh, have you on with us today. And as we look at Matthew 14, can you begin our time in prayer? Absolutely. Almighty and, and he- Heavenly Father, we come before you this day asking, as we always do, as we come to your word, that your word would come to us, that it would continue to help us to grow in the love and the mercy and the grace that you have shown to us in our dear Savior, Jesus. We ask that you would be with us as we read this word this day, that we may not fear those who might oppose your kingdom, but rather that they might come to know that your kingdom is coming. And we know that your kingdom comes now to us here today in your word again, and we pray that uh, we look forward to to the day when it'll come forever. Comfort us with the knowledge that you live and rule eternally. This we pray all in the one who is our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. As we look at Matthew chapter 14, as Pastor said very well, that God's kingdom has come. God's kingdom is here and God's kingdom is coming. That is what we have looked at throughout our whole time in Matthew. So if you have any questions concerning really all of Matthew to this point, and especially chapter 14, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org. Now, Pastor, as we look at this text today, I'm going to start by just reading the first, the, all our verses, which is verses 1 through 12, and and to be able to, first of all, that um, Pastor Brian Davies last week just just emphasized how every every verse matters. Like there's none that we want to throw out the window or anything along those lines, and this is one of those that is very distinctly in my mind because when I was a kid, I was watching some christian documentary or i can't remember what it was i can't i asked my father recently and he didn't necessarily know um what it was or a while ago and i just remembered distinctly a head on a platter that was it still sticks in my mind a lot of things i don't remember as a kid when it comes to bible stuff but that was one that really stuck in my mind and something that we, we conveniently like to kind of overlook but it is a very important piece of scripture john the baptist was a very important person and what does this mean for us today so we reflect on that obviously with our christ goggles on as we look at verses 1 through 12 and we'll be reading from the english standard version beginning verse 1 at that time herod the tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and he and his guests had commanded it to be given, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. 
This is our text this morning. And Pastor, th- everything happens in a context. So what's the context uh, uh, before this and, and any introductory thoughts you have? Well, uh, Jesus had actually been talking in parables prior to this. He'd been teaching, uh, you know, and you had the the whole of uh, all of those parables in chapter 13, uh, which Jesus, you know, is starting to get larger crowds that are starting to gather. He's starting to become more famous in that sense, in that uh, people are listening to his word and, and gathering and gleaning from what what he's teaching them. Uh, people have already known, you know, up to this point, you, you've already seen that there have been um, uh, miracles and signs and so forth that, that had been done by Jesus. So, you know, it's the, his fame is being picked up, and, I, and I, that's, you know, what leads into this chapter, too, uh, is, is that notation uh, about his fame. And we're going to see that as we go uh, through this, of course. And then we're moving toward, always moving toward um, Jerusalem throughout every one of these uh, gospel uh, texts. You know, you're, you're always moving toward Jerusalem. So you're kind of watching as to, is there anything in these texts that are pointing us to the ultimate, uh, you know, glory that Christ shows on the cross through uh, his suffering and his death? So, yeah, that's kind of where we're at in the, in the whole of things here. At this point, and it's it's really it's really interesting because my I've mentioned this before. That's why I love going through chapter thirteen. I love parables, and you're going through the parables. You're like, yeah, look at this, a hidden treasure. I am that treasure, you know. And then it gets even more personal with the one pearl of great value. That it's not just some far off treasure. Is that he sees us as one of great value to the point of even dying for us. I mean, that's really hard to substantiate in our lives, especially our identity, which is why for you, our listeners, those parables are so important for us. And then it it talks about old new treasures. This is the gift we get to preach. Yeah, Jesus was rejected at Nazareth. So you're feeling relatively pretty good. And then this happens in John the Baptist and in his life. So um, I had one person comment. This sounds kind of like an HBO, uh, an HBO show, you know, just, just right. kind of this back and forth or whatever it might be. But it does remind us that, you know, Matthew keeps it real, that this is the, the real world, a broken world and why we need the king of kings to be our king. Any any I mean, I want to say, is there any glimmer of hope from this text that you want to start us off with? So we don't <laughs> as we as we look at what it has to say. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's almost like there was a transition a little bit, kind of getting us set up, getting us prepared uh, for for what was going to happen in chapter 14 there in verses 53 through 58 in the previous chapter, because it was showing that, well, not everybody uh, was all taken in by what Jesus is saying, because when he gets to Nazareth, now we've got people that are questioning, who is this guy? And you know, Didn't he grow up here? This is his hometown, and, and so forth. So you're already getting a hint that, okay, all these wonderful things that Jesus is saying, haven't been wonderfully received by everybody either as far as uh, those who may not, because it says after he finished these parables, you know, he went away from Mm -hmm. there. So 
maybe these folks didn't hear any of these wonderful parables and everything, but it, but the reality sits in that uh, all of a sudden, not everybody is for this man, by the way. And then then, then we go right into uh, especially uh, Herodias, who, who's definitely not for this man. <laughs> so, so you've got, it's, you've got to, it's kind of moving us toward that, toward that, um, that end. I also wanted to point out too. I didn't show you. I didn't say anything about the uh, immediate context that follows, which is Jesus actually doing two fabulous miracles: the one of the feeding of thousands, and then also the the ability to walk on water. And then right. you know they go right into the healing of the sick again. So it's just bam, bam, bam. There you go. All these things that have brought Jesus fame continues in spite of what ha- what is what happened to John the Baptist. And that's important. That's a great highlight because it shows us the great teaching and healing ministry of Jesus, the miracles he's able to do, that his kingdom is clearly above this world, while at the same time showing us, like you said so wonderfully, that it doesn't mean that everything's perfect. It doesn't mean that everything that he does is going to be received or believed. And and that's really the tension that we live in in our world today. So it definitely relates that that often we kind of we kind of float into this feeling of well if Jesus is truly God then everything would be perfect well there's no mandate for that in Scripture it's more of our own hearts trying to interpret it and then when we are confused on why people don't like to hear the message well we shouldn't be confused because John the Baptist got martyred Jesus got killed almost all the disciples got martyred um, it's 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 part of the game but it does not take away from the power and grace of our Lord Jesus which we continually see throughout Matthew. So, Pastor, I think we're ready to dig in. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right, let's do this. Um, And by the way, we'll read the first four verses, and there's a lot of context. So we will slowly go through this, verses one through four, as we hear about the death of John the Baptist. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Once again, sounds like a a great soap opera. Not that I watch soap operas, but I, as far as I know, that's kind of how these things work out. So let's get back to bare bones here, the basics. Who is Herod the Tetrarch? Wow, I mean, who are all these characters? I mean, this—you're you're right. It's like it's like a, a Peyton place back in the day because I mean, this is—it's horrendous. You know, I—I I was actually as I was trying to decipher, you know, who's who in the zoo there. I was actually mm. looking back at some of the the, the other uh, passages that talk about relatives, you know, of mm. Herod and of Herodias and of Philip, and and it's just like wow, it's just hard to follow because not all the titles were always given either. And uh, so, you know, that's when I run to a commentary and I start looking Absolutely. to see how do, how do they talk about it. Um, and it's just, it's interesting, you know, to see that, uh, you know, that you've got Herod and you've got 
Philip, and they're all related, and yet um, they're married to folks who are also part of their relationship. <laughs> it's like, this is a mess. It really is. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, as far as Herodias, I mean, if you look at her, I just let me just share just a little touch of what uh, what these relationships look like. So this is uh, this is from a commentator by the name of William Hendrickson, and I just I just was amazed by this. It says at a later time this daughter uh, Salome, who was going to marry, actually I'm sorry, this daughter Herodias was going to marry her half uncle Philip the Tetrarch, thereby becoming both the sister-in-law and the aunt of her own mother. <laughs> and I'm like. That's a mess. <laughs> oh, my. So, so there's so much going on here that you really have to, you'd almost have to get all these characters side by side just to see the relationship between them. I mean, this is how horrendous it is. This is why John the Baptist needed to say something and say it again and again and again, how, how incestuous this, this whole situation was. So as far as I know, and, and that's very helpful because you really bring out the the uh, elephant in the room. Like, wait, if I actually read this closely, <laughs> this is a little too close to, um, um, you know, a little close to the family, I guess you would say. So when we look at Herod, the Tetrarch, also called Antipas, he was right. son of Herod the Great. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was... what how. how I read I read a number of things on this, and I was like you said, I'm trying to determine what this is. It sounds like he's not the great, but he's kind of like one step down from the ruler of the area, and he was the ruler of Galilee, which would be more north of Jerusalem, for a number of years. So it sounds like he was kind of important, but not that important in the whole realm of everything. Do you find anything on that? Yeah, just you know the the fact that you know he did have that area. And I think it's also it's also uh, important to know that um, you know this this one this one Herod that's an Antipas is also um, part Jewish in the sense that uh, his I think it was his mother um, was uh, was the I want to say the Samaritan so there was some some Jewish blood there too so um, yeah, that that's kind of interesting in itself. Um, you know, hmm. that he, not only is he the son of Herod the Great, but uh, his wife was a Samaritan wife. Uh, her name was Malthus, I believe is how that's pronounced. But, yeah, so there so, you go. So let me, let me ask you this. Why is that significant? How would you, how would, if someone would say, okay, what does that mean? Uh, what would you say? Well, that, that he would have some familiarity with a little bit of what's going on in, among the Samaritans and among the Jews, and he would definitely know, um, you know, just the the relationships of of the Gentiles with them. Um, you know that that would that would put him in a pretty interesting situation in that he was uh, part mm-hmm. Samaritan. You know, <laughs> and what does that mean? You know, in, in in relationship to all those different people groups. Yeah, and that's very helpful because he's in a political position, but he knows the game. So he's a little bit different than Pontius Pilate, as we would see in The Passion, that he understands the dynamic. So that's why when we later on read that it's like, hey, you know, he, he this guy's a prophet, you know, hands off. Uh, so he understood all of those dynamics, but yet he's still a politician who is, well, he's doing things behind the scenes that are clearly not good at this point. So, so we have Herod. And then we have, um, uh, it starts this way, it starts kind of strangely, and we look at narrative, 
because right, yes. he says something that we don't quite understand. It says, this is John the Baptist. He hears of Jesus. He's been raised from the dead. This is why his miraculous powers are at work in him. It leaves you scratching your head a little bit. What is he saying there? Well, he's saying that, you know, he's making this, yeah, the timetable here is, is, is if, you're, if you're not, if you're not familiar with um, the fact that that John the Baptist is already dead, you know, at this point, uh, you got you got uh, Jesus that he is hearing about, you know, and this fame is coming to him, and now he's wondering if this one John the Baptist, who who has been beheaded, has now been raised back from the dead. And now he's been giving these miraculous powers at work in him, and I guess he's got this name Jesus. <laughs> it's like, it's like, huh? <laughs> where is this all coming from? And so the story has to be told now about where, where John the Baptist's death. You know what happened? And we learn in chapter four of Matthew, chapter four, that he, that that John the Baptist was arrested by Herod, right. um, put into prison, and he was saying something pretty simple. Now, break this down for us. You have Philip, his brother, you have a Herodias, and what, how would you describe the relationship? Um, yeah, how would you describe the relationship of these three individuals? Oh, that's, that's, that's really tricky. <laughs> Come on now. Very Give strange. Straight. Can I say that? Uh, it's just awkward as all get out because it's not following anything that's, that's God's will for us in, in relationships that he wants us to have with one another. Um, because it's just, yeah. I mean, this is like close family. This is like deliverance. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just, it's weird. It is very strange. That's for sure. So basically, if I'm reading this correctly, Herod has a relationship with Herodias, and Herodias is also his brother Philip's wife. And it yes. doesn't sound like, uh, who knows how much Philip knows? We don't know, but it, it obviously was public enough that John the Baptist knew. And, and John basically says it as simple as this. I mean, this is, this is like simple law. Like if you sit in confirmation class and say, what's adultery? This is the number one where all the kids in the room, no matter where they're from, would say, yeah, that's not right. So um, that's simply what John is saying. What's the big deal? Why would Herod be offended by this? What are your thoughts? Well, he'd be offended by this because um, he knows it's wrong. I mean, he comes out of a culture of people that know that this is a commandment and this is that, and that what he's done is very intentionally wrong. And um, so John is telling him this to let him know that you've now broken the law of God, and and it's public. I mean, everybody knows that. I mean, you can't. You this is something that can't be hidden. You know, everybody knew that. Uh, you know, they were married to other people, and now they're married to other people's other people. <laughs> it's like everybody knows that. It's just like it is today. It's it's the one public sin that people can see. I mean, you can you can't run from it, you can't hide from it. People know. So, um yeah, and he's feeling guilt. You know, he's got a lot mm -hmm. of guilt now because that's what the law does, and that's what John is doing with the law here too. It it is it is crazy because we all will fall into this that if some when someone calls us out on the sin we've done, whether it's a minor one or a major one, how many times do you hear that and go, oh, okay, that's good. I was recently watching a show um, where uh, a guy, two guys were really fighting over a young lady. 
and it, they were you know they were willing to do whatever it took to to win the heart of this young lady and it, it's so funny on tv because it's totally not the way it would go but they're fighting for it and something goes wrong and and the gal comes in and says i've already made my choice i choose neither one of you and then the, the, right there they go oh okay and then the, all three of them walk away with smiles on their faces You're like that's not how that would go i mean there would be there'd be anxiousness and there'd be anger and there would be fights and everything else and here this is real like this is not a tv show it's like if someone called someone out on sin like this nobody or not nobody i can't say ever but most of us will not be happy to hear what has to be said. So I understand the reaction, no doubt, but it's just so far from reality that part of it is just like, you know what? I don't mind doing this. So how dare you tell me that it's wrong, which I think is very common for all of us. Any thoughts? Yeah, well, and, and, and yeah, because he's a, he's a leader. He's a tetrarch, right? Mm-hmm. And so kings and tetrarchs and, and all the people that are in leadership positions are in a public position. And so, you know, when... A sin is called out on somebody that's in that position. It's going to be a public calling out. You know, it's not going to be done in private. And so uh, it's going to have a greater impact because we hold our leaders, and we should anyway, hold our leaders to a higher standard, one that uh, truly uh, needs to be corrected if it's wrong. And that's where, that's where John the Baptist is with us. Um, Pastor Any, uh, before we move on, we have about two minutes before our break. I really want to make sure that we, in these first four verses, relate it to today. Um, John the Baptist knew when he preached this that this would have implications. And our natural reaction to this might be, well, you know, John the Baptist lost his life. Um, and it might make us a little hesitant to point out people's sins. And why is it important? And you've alluded to it. I just want to unpack it a little more. Why is it important for us as Christians to patiently and lovingly? I can guarantee John the Baptist did that in some loving way. It sounds like they had some kind of relationship that, um, that our hesitancy to call out sin because of the implications. Why is it important for the church to continue to do that? Well, as you were talking about that, I was thinking more in terms of, man, there are a lot of examples throughout the Scripture of people, of prophets, and and so forth, calling people out, you know, like Jonah. He didn't want to do it. He he ran away, you know. You have Mm -hmm. Stephen. Mm -hmm. He did it, and he got stoned to death. I mean, it's just, that is the reaction of the human spirit against God's will and His law. And and so, um, you know, this is not a surprise. I don't. I don't believe that John the Baptist, uh, you know, especially when he's asking Jesus from prison. You remember, there's the other story too that's connected to this, where where he's asking his mm-hmm. disciples to go ask him, "Are you the one uh, that we've that we've been waiting for? Is there another?" And here, here's John. Uh, probably just absolutely shocked that he's in prison when he has Jesus and the Lord right there uh, on his side. He's been, he's the one called uh, to be now in prison for, uh, you know, staying true to the word, staying true to God and what, it, and what, and what that word has to say. So, I mean, he was not the first one he said this to, I'm sure. I mean, you say this to everybody. He is the, he's the walking law of God, you know? Mm. So, uh, and eventually, uh, man's evil spirit uh, was going to catch up to to that and and put him to death. 
and it and it, it, it and I love how you pointed out a few situations throughout Scripture. It's everywhere where they preach the law, and it doesn't necessarily turn out rosy. I mean, you do have David and Jonathan where he does repent, mm-hmm. and there's yep. forgiveness. I mean, that's one example of an instant boom, boom situation. But then you have, like you said, with with uh, um, with Stephen. But then right at the end of that, we see that God works through it all. There's Saul right. who, you know, comes to Christ. And then you have a Jonah, which he doesn't want to do it, but he does preach, and people repent. And so we, it's, it's a faith issue of trusting the Lord will do as he promises to do. So right now, I want to talk more about that on the other side of the break. We are studying Matthew chapter 14 with Pastor Curtis Dieterding, and we'll be right back. Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org. And welcome back. We are studying Matthew chapter 14 with Pastor Curtis Dieterding of Zion Lutheran Church in Fort Myers, Florida. Now, Pastor, I want um, to, to make a connection that we will have hopefully this summer, uh, Pastor, is uh, this past summer, I traveled to Northfield, Minnesota, and hung out with Pastor John Lekomsky, one of our regular guests. And you are a regular guest here. And this summer, my family is planning to fly down to Fort Myers, Florida, and to spend a week there. So I'm, I'm hoping that we're able to connect and invite any listeners in the area to come and hang out with us. What do you think? Oh, I think that'd be a blast. I think that'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, we'll figure it out. Either way, it'll be fun to see you face-to-face and to hang out and uh, just the joy of being together um, in the name of Jesus. So looking forward to that. It'll be mid-June, and we'll keep you um, in the loop when we arrive. But um, Yeah, we're probably going to want to look for something air-conditioned. <laughs> <laughs> it does you know, to get a little hot during that time. It sounds, it sounds great. It sounds great to me. But anyway. <laughs> Well, Pastor, we have gone through the first four verses, and we've we've really touched on a lot of background. We've, we've talked about the importance of the law, and and the the law leads us to the grace of God in Christ. It 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 shows us one we need a savior. You know, shows us our sin, and the gospel shows us our savior. And right now, we see an example of that. The, he hears the law, does not like it. And does not repent and look back to the Lord. He looks back to himself and tries to figure it out on his own. So that is the implications and a very sad, dark implication that we'll see today. So anything else in the first four verses uh, before we move on, Pastor? No, I think I think we've covered the ground pretty well as far as uh, okay. the foundation of where we're moving now. So. All right. So verse 5, we will read, And though he wanted to put him to death... He feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. 
I wanted to stop there because we see this tension that he he's a politician. And what's the tension that he's dealing with um, as a tetrarch in this area? Well, I mean, just that somebody else is up and coming, you know, <laughs> and what could that mean as far as, you know, his position and where he stands and w- what he's doing at this point. And it's interesting because it says that he feared and it goes right to he feared the people. Well, I think he feared more than just the people. He feared what they believed John the Baptist to be to them, is what it's saying here. He feared the fact that this is a prophet, and if he's a true prophet, he's from God. And so his fear could be directed to the fact that he knows what prophets are capable of and what they've done in the past and that they should be adhered to. And he's he's probably got that guilt going on, because like I said, he would know... Uh, the teachings of the moral law uh, with, with just the background, those that were in his background. And so he, yeah, he, so he knows that other people see him to be a prophet, but it, it definitely does not say Herod knew he, that he thought he was a prophet. And so right. there's definitely a faith issue. There's, a, um, you know, as one with Jewish background, he would kind of have an understanding of what the Messiah was. But it's clear that he is, once again, fearing God. Uh, fearing, excuse me, wrong. I don't, don't, don't quote that. Fearing the people more than he was God, which is really a first commandment issue. And, and I guess that's all of our issue. What are your thoughts on, on the first commandment and all of us? Well, yeah, ab- absolutely. When it comes to, um, you know, putting God first, I mean, obviously, none of these folks that are married to one another here and and doing all of what they're doing is putting God first. In fact, when we break any of the commandments, um, we are not putting God first in our lives. I mean, it's just obvious that we're not we're not we something else has become our God. Something else has. Uh, taken us away from our from our our true fear, love, and trust in him, and you know, like I said uh, before, you know, Herod would have been familiar with this, and and whenever he hears the prophets say that this is um, not according to the law, and it's not lawful for you to have her, uh, he knew what that meant. He knew exactly what that meant, and. Uh, he didn't want to hear it. He'd rather just put him to death, and he wouldn't have to listen to it anymore. That's pretty much where he was at. So let's continue to move on, verses 6 and 7, because now we really get into the soap opera HBO version of, of the Scriptures. So yep. verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So there's a number of issues that, that come to play here. Uh, name one of them. What, what's one of the issues of what happens in, this, in these verses? Well, I think, I think the wine was talking. Uh, you, you know, you know how, much, how much were they partying? I mean, we're talking about a birthday party here, and he invited people to come. And evidently, there are people that don't mind having a young woman dancing in front of them, you know, exotically. And, and so, you know, he's loosened up. And, um, of course, after, you know, all the events take place as we move forward, he, you can see and you can sense that there's definitely some regret from what he had made on oath, you know, to, um, to Herodias. So it's, uh, it's really interesting uh, to see that this is kind of the setup. 
and 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 you have you have to think to yourself, you know, how much of her was in all of this, knowing what he might do or might say. Uh, I don't know how often you know we don't. What we don't know is we don't how, know how often he promised her things like this. So it makes me wonder if she knew that he might you know, say that if he if he's had enough wine and he's had enough Mary, maybe he might get to that point where he would say something again, you know, that she's heard before. I don't know. This doesn't sound like it's out of character for him. We don't we don't hear anything like that. So, uh, yeah, you can't help but uh, try to figure out how much of, 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 of his wife is in on all of this right from the get go. Right. And and that's where there's clearly nobody is leaving that room without, I guess you say, blood on their hands. You know, right. we, we can rail on Herod. Um, it's his birthday, so he's having a good time, whatever that looks like. I don't think I want to know more than that. There, like you said, there might have been wine, probably was alcohol involved. The daughter of Herodias's, or of Herodias danced before the company. Now, trying to figure out family, it's like it's like when I... Recently, we we met someone down the road from us, and it ended up that her and me, or the, the the wife and and myself, our grandparents were were sisters. And so you're like, okay, all right, you're trying to figure out, okay, how are we related here? Um, and so you try to break that down. This one's a little closer though, so it shouldn't be that difficult. We're talking about the daughter of Herodias. What does that make this daughter to Herod? That's what I'm trying to figure out now that you've walked us through that. I, I'm not sure now. So I'm like, oh, well, my. If, yeah. Yeah, because I was just saying that a while ago. You know, this is, this is that relationship that I was talking about. There's, there's relationship between both of them there um, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, makes her, what was it, her uncle? I can't remember. I shut the books. I don't remember exactly I how all those relationships more. You yeah. didn't want to read more, yeah. Right, right. It's, <laughs> it's like, as far, really? well, assuming, assuming that Philip is married to Herodias, right, that if they're married, that this, if that, I'm, I'm going to assume that this is Philip's daughter, right? So this would yeah. be his niece, right? I mean, this would be her, her uncle that she's dancing for, am I correct? Yeah, I'm thinking that's what I said earlier. It says at a later time, this daughter was going to marry her half-uncle, Philip the Tetrarch, thereby becoming both the sister-in-law and the aunt of her own mother. It should also be noted that Salome's mother, Herodias, had a brother who was to become King Herod Agrippa I. So now Herod Antipas, on a visit to Herod Philip, became infatuated with Herodias. The two illicit lovers agreed to separate from their present marriage partners, Herodias from Herod Philip, Herod Antipas from the daughter of Aretas, I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. Aretas, the king of the Nabataean Arabs, so that they could marry each other. And it was done. And then when John the Baptist heard about this, this is when he began to rebuke uh, Herod Antipas. So that's the relationship as... Um, like I said, uh, Hendrickson pulls together there because I I don't think I could have done that on my own. <laughs> so no, like, and that's a lot sense. there. That's a lot. Let's just go bare history. bones. That that mm-hmm. this is really close to the family lineage. That no way that you could justify it being a moral activity of what's happening in this at this time. So um, we'll leave that for what it is. Um, so so it's disturbing. 
In verse 7 comes one that I think brings us back to the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, and he promised with an oath. You know, Jesus is very clear about being careful with oaths. Um, mm-hmm. because it can be very, this is Matthew 5, verse 33 through 37. Be careful with those oaths. So he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. This is problematic. And why is that problematic? Well, he becomes her genie right here, and it becomes problematic because there are no parameters. It can be anything. Mm-hmm. It's just like, you know, you know, your wish is my command. And that's exactly what's being done here. Um, just speak, like I'm saying, you know, I mean, there's, there's, they're making Mary here, and and uh, he gets to this point where he's feeling so so much merriment that um, he just has this loose tongue and makes an oath. And it's always dangerous. I don't care who does it, where, when, you know, any time that we make these promises, these covenants, these oaths to one another, um, you better you better be certain that you know what it is that you're doing and what you're promising. And, uh, you know, it's not like when God makes a covenant or, or a promise to us, because we know that that's uh, definitely a perfect promise and a perfect covenant that God knows exactly what he's doing. He's just flippant. He's the, he's the, he's the, he's the other side of the coin. He's, he's just out of nowhere, just kind of throws it out there, and then she's, now she's going to take advantage of that. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, and that's it's exactly right. The open-endedness of it that definitely does not put God into the picture is problematic. But Jesus says this, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is a footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is a city of great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. I would probably put that in that realm, that he, he definitely took a, an oath by his head and probably other parts <laughs> of his life. Right. And let, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that is, comes from evil. More than this comes from evil. That's the, the same. So I think definitely he's gone beyond the yes and no. And he has created a whole new um, dynamic to the oath. So um, this this is not going in a good direction. Any last thoughts before we hear the well, the other shoe dropping in this story? Yeah. So so little do you you know I am a soccer official. We're actually coming okay. into our we're coming into our district games right now. So we actually have soccer as a winter sport down here. And every once in a while, I have to stop the game and, and most often give a card to someone who has made a reckless play. They made a decision that was reckless, and now they're going to be penalized for it. So I'm the lawgiver on the field. And I'm thinking to myself, there could be nothing more reckless than making an oath. You know, I mean, I would have definitely carded him right there <laughs> if I would have been in the room. Because, uh, yeah, this... That's that's the first that's the first move. That's really just that's just plain sinful right there, just to make an oath that anything goes because you're saying I'll just give you, give you whatever you want. It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong, or against God's will or with God's. He didn't care. He's not he's not God fearing in that moment. He's just thinking that he's he's on top of the world. He owns everything. He can do whatever anybody wants, and uh, and it's going to backfire on him. So let's continue because. 
the you know to be fair to to Herod is that he probably thought you know she will want a new necklace or she'll want a little more food or she'll want a nice house i mean all of these things are not good i mean this is not a good thing but i you can't imagine he would have thought the next thing so here we are in verse 8 prompted by her mother excuse me she said give me the head of john the baptist on a platter so I'm just going to stop there for a moment. This is this would be her mother would be Herodias. Why would she want John the Baptist to perish? What are your thoughts? Well, because because she's also impacted by the fact that that John has called um, Herod out, and and he she knows that he's talking to her too, and you know she's she's part of this whole mess. And she's getting tired of hearing it as well. And so uh, just like where it says that, you know, Herod wanted to have him dead, you know, he, he wanted to put him to death, so so does she. I, I'm sure I would have loved to have been like a fly on a wall whenever those two were talking about John the Baptist, mm. because I'm sure they both were talking about um, a way, uh, you know, it would be nice if we could if we could get rid of him. But at the same time, there's there could be a, a political upheaval that goes on if that were to happen, and the people uh, that know that he's a prophet um, and how they're going to look in the eyes of those folks. So they were trying to, to figure out something. So it makes you wonder, you know, just how much of this uh, was maybe even uh, talked about or discussed at one other time, you know, at other times. Um, he knew he couldn't really kill him, but at the same time, it would be nice. He'd, he'd, he'd be better off for both of them if he were dead. And uh, this is a mess. This is a <laughs> mess. <laughs> That's where um, I think that really sums it up beautifully, because one of the unique things about this um, portion of Scripture is we can easily look at this and go, Oh, that terrible Herod, you know, he's in these, this adulterous life and he, and he's forcing Herodias into this kind of relationship. And, and, and she's not, you know, she's this kind of innocent flower on the side with no, no bad intentions whatsoever. She's just caught in a terrible trap of, of the sin of Herod and maybe of Philip or whoever it might be. But it's pretty clear here that Herodias is, is, is part of this. The law is working on her heart as well. And so that she could have asked for money. She could have asked for something else. She could have asked for this. But what did she want? She wanted to get rid of the one proclaiming the guilt that she was feeling in her life. And therefore, not only have him, um, have him destroyed, but also make this even more so something that we can parade around to show people, this is what happens if you call us out the head of the platter, head on the platter of John the Baptist. And so it really shows the brokenness in this world. And it's, uh, well, it's pretty explicit right there. Any, any, any other thoughts on, on why would she ask for his head to be in a platter? Any, anything to add to that? Um, well, just the fact that, that I think she just felt that all of this would go away. <laughs> that, you know, if the prophet, if the message, if the messenger was, were killed, then the message could go away, and and no one else is going to be bold enough to, to step forward and and get into the prophet's shoes and talk to them more about this. Um, it's what's really interesting is this reminds me of uh, when I was younger. My father used to say, especially if I uh, had had sinned, and then I did something else to try to cover up that sin that was just as sinful, and then maybe lie about it. And he, he would say, you know, you are digging your grave. You know that. 
um, you know, all you're doing is digging it deeper and deeper. And that's what I see Herod doing here. I see him digging this grave that he has started deeper and deeper. And it started when they got married. It started when they left their spouses, then they got married, then they took in the, the then they imprisoned God's prophet and because they didn't like what he had to say and and it's just going to only get worse. It's just he's digging it deeper and deeper and deeper until, you know, we could see this gruesome act that he finally performed. Cuz he could have stopped it at any point. He could he could mm-hmm. have, but he chooses not to. He just feels like, well, I made an oath. I guess I have to keep it now. Well, he didn't have to keep it, but he wanted to to save face. He was only thinking of himself through this whole mess. Well, that's interesting. That's what we do as we continue to pile sin upon sin. We think of no, no one but ourselves. And this is, it goes back to, a, a, I saw a recent uh, article on a, a called sunk cost basis or sunk cost that people will continue to try to cover everything up because they're already so far into it that if they just do this, then they will be able to get out of this as opposed to stopping, restarting and saying, you know what, this is not working. I'm going to have to just start over now. And instead of you just becoming more and more sunk in this, and that really relates to the story, they could have stopped long ago, you know, but they didn't. And it's going to continue to get worse and worse. So let's get to the last um, number of our verses and, and actually, I'm going to go through verse 13 because it in, involves Jesus in the story as well. So verse 9, and the king was sorry. Okay, those are good words. Mm-hmm. But because of his oaths and his guest, he commanded it to be given. Actually, I'm just going to stop there. So we see the king feels bad, but does that lead to repentance? What does that lead to? No, I mean, you know, you can have sorrow, but sorrow also, um, what comes with that is action. You know, action is going to reveal whether or not you're truly repentant. And we don't, we don't see that, of course, as we go forward with, his, with the actions that he takes. So, um, you know, there's, a, there's confessing, there's, there's re- really truly feeling sorrow to the point of wanting to turn away from what we've done wrong and to, you know, turn to God and ask for his mercy. But you're not going to see that happen here. And uh, so there's a difference between confessing something and actually repenting, being contrite in our hearts. Uh, an example I like to give to the junior confirmants whenever we're talking about this topic is, you know, I can confess to uh, doing something against somebody that was sinful. You know, yeah, I slapped him for no reason at all, and if I had the chance, I'd slap him again. You know, I can sit there and confess that all day. Well, what does that mean? You know, it doesn't mean anything leading toward repentance or contrition or sorrow. Um, and I can even say I'm sorry and then do it again. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I can I just immediately do it again. doesn't mean that I'm truly repentant in my heart. Only God knows that, of course, and, of course, we ourselves know that as well. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot going on here. You know, he's sorry, but really, if you are sorry, then why are you doing what you're going to do? Uh, next, you know, because in in the eyes of God, there would need to be a change of heart as to to what your actions now are going to do going forward. And once again, leads us to why not to make the oath in the first place, as Jesus warns us in Matthew chapter 5. Let's go on, verse 10. 
He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Go to verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. So, kind of give us a, a rundown. What happened? Well, you know, it's it's sandwiched with Jesus. You know, Jesus at the front and the back of that. Whenever you add that verse in at this point, because mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you can you can you can sense that because Jesus went to be in a desolate place. That when he does that, that he goes to his father and he prays and um, he's. He's meditating on everything that just happened. This is the very reason for which he's come into this world, was sin and death. And and you know that he's going to take the time uh, to reflect on that. And earlier I had mentioned that, you know, when we look at Scripture and we're moving toward Jerusalem, how do each of these pieces continue to point us that direction? Um, it's very interesting, you know, I didn't make this comment earlier, but when uh, Herod had said, this is John the Baptist, he has been raised from the dead, it's almost prophetic in a way that you can see that's coming. You know, that's, mm. you're right, Herod, that's, that is going to be the one who is risen from the dead, and it's going to mean more than just the miraculous powers that you see him doing here, because all of that's pointing to his resurrection. And and so, you know, you get that sense already. It's kind of, this is where this is all moving to. And even uh, the death of prophets, this is nothing new. This is what happened to the prophets in the Old Testament. And here we see it happening again with uh, under the leadership of Herod. And then, and then um, I like the part, too, in, in verse 12, and his disciples came, took the body, and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. There is definitely a flow here uh, that this is all moving to another death, another burial, another one that's going to be greater for all, and that's and that's Jesus. And so, um, yeah, just the, the fact that Jesus is reflecting upon the very purpose for which he's coming, I believe that's all part of this is why I'm here, this is what I'm doing, this is the purpose for which I came, to save people from their sins and to free them from the sin, death, and the devil. It is interesting from this that we do not receive a reaction from Herodias and no. and her daughter. We don't we don't know. She brought the platter, gave it to the girl. Um, he he took the head, brought it to the girl. She brought it to her mother, and then it ends. And I'm not trying to read into that too much, but it just definitely shows the very somber mo- uh, mood of this. That people are grieving, no doubt, and 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 it really is. Um, uh, a showing of probably a hope of the resurrection that they took his body, he, they buried it, and then they go to the one of whom they know is the resurrection and the life. They go to the one who John preached away from himself. You know, it could have easily been like, this is all about me here, folks. Um, no, he's the one that pointed at Jesus in John chapter 1 and says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's just a great reminder for us that what did they do? They go to Jesus. What do we do when we grieve? Um, we go to Jesus. And also we see the relationship of Jesus and and John the Baptist. And I want to just make sure we hit on this. We have about a minute and a half left here, Pastor. Is He withdrew there in a boat to by himself. What does that tell us about Jesus and the relationship with John? 
Well, that he's, you know, that Jesus, every life is valuable, you know, and every time that there's death that enters in, um, it's a reminder, and it should be a reminder to us that that is the result, that is the wages uh, of our sin, and that uh, it's, it's, uh, it's that which separates us from everyone that we love here in this world. Jesus, uh, of course, uh, being God in the flesh now, uh, being able to see and sense um, in a very in a very real way, you know what we go through, and uh, and shows us that His compassion and His love is is so much greater and so much deeper uh, to the point that He was evil, even you know, willing enough to, to give up his own life. I mean, you know, he, he cried at the funeral of his uh, friend Lazarus. Uh, mm-hmm. You know that, you know, death is always um, that which makes Jesus very somber in nature because he knows that that's the purpose for which he came, was to, to get to conquer death uh, itself. And so you see resurrections that he do, he does, and you can see it uh, all the way through, how, how deeply Jesus loves us and wants us to be alive with him forever. Pastor Curtis Dieterding of Zion Lutheran Church in Fort Myers, Florida, giving us God's strong word from Matthew chapter 14. Pastor Dieterding, thank you for bringing us his gifts. It's always a joy, and God bless. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands.